preach two scriptures today, one from Luke and one from Matthew. First is Luke 15, 11 through 13. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. In Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Good morning. Really good to be back, to be back with everybody. Um, appreciate um, the uh, the time away from preaching to uh, to work on big picture stuff like our, our our next year's theme, community group material, you know, preaching plans, getting a bunch of books and uh, stuff in the pipeline on the other end because whatever you see up here is always the the other end of the pipeline. It's stuff that's been in there for a while, so we're a tip of a, a larger. Uh, uh, amount of effort. So um, I want to say, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and just sort of update you on what's going on with my dad and mom. <coughs> um, the, uh, for, for those of you who visit, my dad just got a, a leukemia a diagnosis and he is in UNC Hospital. So we've pretty much been kind of living over there. My, my sister is here now from Alabama and she's literally spending the night there the last couple nights. My mom won't, you know, she's not going to leave the room. We've tried to get her to. She's might go to Tyler and Tookie's, take a shower, which is 15 miles or minutes from there or something, but she's not going to, at this point, leave. But uh, my dad is, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's not in great shape. Um, he's still his, just so you know, he's still his funny cat bird self, messing with the nurses and stuff. But he, a lot of times he's, he's just sort of there kind of... Uh, um, sleeping and um, having a little trouble getting deep breaths, things like that. I won't go into all the details, but all the love from y'all, my mom and dad wanted me to tell you that they just so appreciate this church family and the love and um, all the, my phone's been smoking from all the texts and, and emails and offers to, to do things. And we just want you to know we really appreciate that. I guess if you wanted my, my opinion on what to pray for, uh, I'm still praying for my dad's healing until it's an unequivocal. All right, that's it. This is probably idiotic for me to try this, but uh, anyway, we're gonna do it. And just so you know, um, in our family, we cry. It doesn't mean we're losing our mind. It's all, we just cry. Why don't you cry is my question. You know, if you don't cry, what's up with you? You know. Uh, yeah, so we cry. You got me, Stephen, on that? There you go. Stephen's a cry. <laughs> but no, we, we, big picture, it, 100%. We, we believe what we preach and practice, and um, that's covered. You know, my dad is, uh, he, he, he's in Jesus' hands now, and always be, will be, no matter what happens. And so it's not, it's not that. It's just, you know, um, well, you know what it is. But anyway, to pray. Pray specifically for the healing. Pray, pray for his comfort. Pray for my mom a lot. Um, I don't even need to say why. Uh, pray for my sister. Pray for Sheree and me. 
I mean, Cherie's trying to take care of her dad and, and my dad and, uh, and all that. So anyway, let's, let's just go ahead and preach and be quiet about all that. Keep praying. Love you all so much. And we're just going to head out right after and go, go back over there. Okay, so th- there's a couple of texts here. Um, <clears throat> the first one is a pretty famous one from the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15. And you'll notice it says that the, the younger uh, brother takes the inheritance from his father before the father has, has died. Kind of an audacious, you know, arrogant uh, thing to do. Uh, but he goes on a journey into a far country. And I'm struck by that phrase, a journey. He heads off on a journey into a far country. I want to ask you at the beginning, how, how do those words, the words of that phrase, high, highlighted red there, how do they strike you? If I just say, in, without any context, journey, trip, into a far country, do you, does that uh, convey to you a sense of, of adventure or, or anxiety? Does it bring feelings of, of fun, like potential fun or, or foreboding? Yeah, escape, possibilities, but then maybe there's a, you know, potential pitfalls. I mean, it's not, it's a far country. It's not home. It's, you don't know maybe the language. You don't know the ways. You don't know the roads. You don't know whether it's safe. I mean, there's all of that maybe built in together with this idea. It probably depends on our personalities, but also depends on the nature that the trip ends up taking. Well, what he's headed off to do basically is to do what we might call finding ourselves. You know, I'm going to find myself. Uh, he, he's, he's heading off to write his own story, to pursue his dream. And I, I would say, like most people, on, on some level at least, or at some point in their lives, he's basically asking, you know, I'm going to go find out what this life is all about. I'm going to go find out what it holds for me, what this world is all about. How do I find my place in it? How do I succeed? How will I fulfill my dreams? How will I define success in the first place? You know, it's all those things. It's, it's, it's what we often, when we're leaving home, are envisioning, right? Success, adventure, meaning, satisfaction, fulfillment. We don't even know the right questions, but we, we, we go. He's doing that in a peculiar circumstance where he's kind of doing it early, maybe. Um, there's something messed up with just the way that begins, asking for the inheritance before your father has passed away, but he's headed off to find himself, supposedly. And a lot of lessons can be, can be learned from the parable of the prodigal son. A lot of lessons can, I've, I've preached from this numerous times, and there's so many things. It's like other scriptures. The more you squeeze it and milk it and look at it from a different way, something brings something to your attention, you read something, and all of a sudden it, it, it's cast in a new light. Today I want to talk about one simple thing, and that is this, this kind of idea of, of our journey of self-discovery, this quest to find ourselves if you will. So let's talk about going into a far country for a few minutes this morning. The hazards and hopes of finding yourself. All right. I'm not going to read a whole lot of the parable throughout the whole thing and comment on every part of it because I'm, I'm assuming a certain level of familiarity. We'll read enough for you to get it if you haven't, if you're not familiar with the story at all. The basics anyway. I just want to suggest three things this morning to, uh, in, in this quest for finding ourselves, three important things that this text would suggest we need to remember. Three things we need to remember as we think about finding ourselves, discovering ourselves, and so on. And the first one is a very simple point. And that is that freedom, which we all long for, the liberty to do what we want, the absence of constraints, that's a mixed blessing. 
Freedom isn't just some simple thing. Give me freedom and everything's good. Really. The Father, and there's a lot of freedom here. I mean, the Father in the story, who of course represents God, allows His Son to go away. That's the, that's the first weird thing. I'm going to go into a far country. The Father doesn't say, I don't think it's a good idea. He doesn't say, uh, well, I'm going to go with you, protect you. Here, here's a, a, a bunch of soldiers I've commissioned, or officers of the law, or you know, here's all this stuff. He, he just lets him go. There's complete freedom to go do what he wants. And he lets him go with a sizable inheritance. Don't we all pretty much think that's inappropriate? For him to even make the request? But the, the father grants the request. The father doesn't chase after him. There's no indication in the text that he goes behind him, you know, sort of shadowing him the whole way. I've done that before. My kids were little, first going out somewhere, you know. I'm not here, but I'm here. You know, you've done that. Are they okay? You know, there's no indication he's doing that. He's not going behind him, cleaning up all the messes he makes. And we know from the rest of the story, he makes a lot of messes. The father just lets him do that. He lets him be an individual who is a free will, volitional creature. And that's a picture of the way God made us. We're absolutely free to do whatever we want, to follow Him, to listen to Him, to ignore Him, to hate Him, to love Him, to disbelieve in His existence, and God lets that happen. That is crazy to me, but awesome too, because what that's called in another context would be love. We don't marry robots. We marry somebody who can think and talk and disagree and shape us like we shape them. And God makes creatures like that too, who can choose to accept Him or reject Him. But it's a mixed blessing, freedom is. It comes with, with, uh, with hopes, but it comes with hazards. And I, I, you know, it's a two-edged sword, we might say. The same freedom of choice that brings us a chance for success brings us a chance for disaster. That brings us a chance for fulfillment, be, brings a chance to, be, to, to, to sort of uh, you know, drive your life into the ground. And disappoint yourself and everyone around you. Think of all the self-destructive uses of freedom in human existence. I mean, this country was founded, you know, the declaration to England, the greatest empire of the day in 1776, was that we're going to be a separate country from you. And a lot of people in, this country, in, in the colon, 13 original colonies were saying, this is crazy. There were a lot of loyalists who said, this is insane. That's the greatest country in the world that has ever been, they thought. The most, some of the, the greatest liberties that had ever existed. We're going to leave them over a tax on tea that amounts to a few pennies? But boy, we had to have freedom. We had to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think it's beautiful. But on the other hand, what have we done with that? Watch the evening news. We don't always do the smartest things with our freedom, do we, as we pursue our happiness? Because we don't know what we're doing, ultimately. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make here. The fact is we aren't really great at knowing how to use and how not to use our freedom. Jeremiah put it this way in chapter 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man, the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. In other words, it's, it's not included in the fundamental traits of a human being to know how to direct your life. You would think maybe, oh, at least we got that. Maybe we're not big, maybe we're not smart, maybe we're not pretty or handsome or well-connected, but at least we know where we're going. No, he's saying you don't know where you're going. 
It is not within you as a human, you know, qua human, to, to know what you're doing, where you're going. We don't have an internal compass that's very well calibrated as human beings. We've got to have outside help. We have freedom, but the freedom is a mixed blessing. I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but that's the first thing I wanted to notice about, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about discovering yourself and finding yourself, just having the ability, the, the opportunity to go do so is not the end of the story. Secondly, we've got to develop the capacity to distinguish between illusion and reality. Our dreams and actual reality. I mean, think about the prodigal son here. What do you think he was envisioning as he took his freedom and his bag of cash and headed into that far country? What thrills and treasures, what experiences and pleasures does this young man you know, imagine as he heads off toward the horizon to find himself? I don't know. We don't know. We're not privy to what he was thinking. But whatever he was expecting, it certainly proved to be far less worthwhile than he'd hoped for. Let's pick it up here in Luke 15. I'm sorry. That, ah, I figured this would happen. What have I done? I skipped the, pas I skipped the passage. All right. Open your Bible. These things are called Bibles. Or your phone. And go to Luke 15. We can do this the way we used to about 15 years ago. Luke 15. 13 and 14. Here's what happens. Whatever he was expecting. Not many days later, the younger son, this is Luke 15, 13, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Reminds me of some of these, you know, fabulously wealthy uh, athletes who become like, you know, their, their personal income after their signing bonus is a size, uh, the GNP of a small nation. Oh, not really, but it seems like a number that I can't even, didn't even make sense to me. And then you read 10 years later, or maybe some rock star, and then it's just gone. He wastes all of his stuff. He squanders it on reckless living. And when he had spent everything, verse 14 says, a severe famine arose in the country. So unexpected developments as well. Probably, that probably wasn't in the plan. The famine, you think? And he began to be in need. Not exactly what he imagined. He needed to do what verse 17 calls coming to himself. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, Luke 15, 17, when he came to himself, he said, I'm not going to finish that yet, but just, I want to take this phrase of coming to yourself. When he came to himself. That's the ESV. If you're using the NIV, I think it and some of the other versions say, when he came to his senses. So some versions say it's split pretty much. The ESV came to himself. That's the more a kind of literal reading. If you look it up, it's, it, it, you know, in the Greek, you're going to get more something like come to himself. But you know, I think we, we say that in English to mean not come back to yourself because you are yourself. But that's sort of the point. He's divided psychologically, spiritually. And he's, he's disintegrating and needs to reintegrate the pieces of himself. Talk more about that in a second maybe. But what does it mean to come to your senses or come to yourself? Well, there's a clue to the meaning of this phrase, I think, Back in Acts 12, and that's the passage I do have on the screen here. It's used this other time, the exact same phrase in the Greek. And over in Acts 12, with regard to Peter, the apostle Peter, when he's jailed by Herod, and you remember he's rescued miraculously, and I'm going to pick that up here in Acts chapter 12, verse 6 through 10, and we'll see the same phrase 
Peter coming to himself. So this is, Peter's in jail, and it says in verse 6 of Acts 12, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. Wow. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So he didn't know it's real. He thinks it's a dream or something. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And he then went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. So all these things are happening. They're amazing, right? Miraculous delivery from this jail. His life looked over, and now he's being liberated. And then we read in uh, the next verse that he came to himself. Same exact phrase that we read about the prodigal when he goes into the far country and the famine comes, and he has no money left, and he's in this hopeless situation. It says here, Peter came to himself and says, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. In the context here then, in the case of Peter, coming to yourself means developing the ability to now see the difference between illusion or dream and reality, right? At first he thought all this was just a vision or a dream. It's not real, I'm just seeing it somehow. It's illusory. But he came to himself, and that means I now can tell the difference. This actually was in the category of real. It wasn't just some, some dream, some vision. And so if we can just you know, take, let the takeaway be, coming to yourself means being able to distinguish between the real and the illusion. And I think that's the common denominator. That does apply to what the prodigal is experiencing in the far country. He comes to himself when he begins to see that his dreams weren't rooted in reality. What he had expected, whatever it was, has proved illusory and futile. And he'd made a major miscalculation about the path through life and what finding yourself, what self-discovery really looks like. And I want to suggest to you that we often um, should have a blank slide there. I should have a lot of things in this PowerPoint today, I guarantee. I'm going to just surprise myself. I already have three times, but it'll keep happening. Imagine that's not on the screen anymore. I think, do I have a blanker thing here? Does this blanket, do you know? I don't want to start pushing stuff. What? Yeah, one of the buttons might launch an ICBM or something. I don't want to, I don't want to mess with that. All right, so... Um, the point I'm trying to make here for us is that we often do, do similar things. We confuse things that are, are, are illusory or transitory for things that have lasting reality. Things that really don't have much substance in the long run for things that have ultimate substance forever. I mean, we're all masters of that. The inability to distinguish the real from the illusory. I might have used this analogy, or this uh, little example before, but I, I read about the man who spent his whole life climbing the ladder of success, year after year after year, sacrificing, doing his homework, staying up late, getting up early, 
day after day, his whole life climbing the ladder of success, only to discover that when he arrived at the top, the ladder was leaning against the wrong building. He was excellent at stuff that didn't matter. Great at achieving things that don't amount to a hill of beans. And there are so many sources of false fulfillment in our world, of illusory mirages that look like success, but leave us holding sand. I've got a book uh, that I've, I've been meaning to get going into. I've just read a little bit of it, had it about six months. and It's by a writer named David Brooks. Maybe you've, you've heard, he writes in everything, The Atlantic and New York Times, and he's on TV all the time. And uh, he's, he's just kind of a moral, ethical, uh, opinion piece writer. And he wrote this book called The Second Mountain. And in the book, the, the, the sort of central metaphor of the book is that we all, we grow up, and by, when it's time to leave home and start on our own life, right, discover, find ourselves, start our career, go to college, go to work, whatever it is, leave our parents home, we, we begin on our own journey, and he uses a mountain image instead of a ladder. We, we begin to climb the mountain, whatever that is. Whatever your career path and your, your life is, you start climbing the mountain. And this, this mountain, basically, uh, the, the, the success on this mountain, the scaling of this mountain is defined pretty much by what your culture and society tells you you should want. And so you're doing those things, and maybe you're really good at it. You're playing the game, right? You need this, you need this, you go to this step, then you get this promotion, you get that, then you go that. And so you're climbing the mountain. But what he's noticed, and he's an uh, upper middle-aged guy, or maybe you know, young, young, youngish side of older. Uh, he, he looks like he's 60 on the back of his book, 63. I'll let you define what that is. For 18-year-olds, it's like you know, you're, you're, you pretty much got a foot in the grave. I know. But he 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 says a whole lot of people he's known. They get to the top of that mountain, kind of like in the middle of their life, you know, in their 50s or something, and they're like, this this mountain is. It's, it's sort of like, eh, this isn't fulfilling. Why was I doing this? And a lot of them, if they're fortunate, discover a second mountain. And that's the name of the book, The Second Mountain. And that second mountain, the transition from the first to the second, is basically a transition from trying to do things for yourself, self-achievement, self-fulfillment, who am I? Let me find myself, me, my, I, that will not bring, he's found, this isn't even like an overtly Christian book. But the second mountain is when somebody begins to do things for other people. They work for a nonprofit, Or they work where they've always worked, but with a different purpose. They start seeing that connecting with people is what matters. Family. Reaching out to the downtrodden. Helping little kids learn to read who are having trouble. Things like that. And, 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 and things that have value and, and, and connection, relational connection, not just all these objects and achievement markers, you know, notches on your belt that mark the first mountain. And the ones that succeed in life are the ones that successfully cross to the second mountain. Here's a quote from the book. And the subtitle is The Quest for a Moral Life. He says, individualism, which is, of course, rampant in our culture, individualism thrives in the prosaic world, the common, ordinary world, the world of career choices and worldly accomplishment. The second mountain ethos, the second mountain you know, way of living, says, no, this is actually an enchanted world. You can't reduce it to just material accomplishments and money and promotions and, and CVs and resumes. It's enchanted. 
More like the medieval and ancient world, really. It's a moral and emotional drama, this life. The second mountain ethos says that a worldview that focuses on self-interest doesn't account for the full amplitude of the human person. That's a, a dwarfed view of what a human really is. You're only getting part of the picture. We are capable of great acts of love that self-interest cannot fathom and murderous acts of cruelty that self-interest cannot explain. Individualism says the main activities of life are buying and selling. But you say no. The main activity of life is giving. Sound familiar? Sounds a little bit like our Lord, doesn't it? Human beings at their best, he writes, are givers of gifts. And he says, when you, if you, the earlier you find that out, the more you're going to love your life. You know, weirdly, that should, that should be your self-interest uh, in, in a weird way. All right, so that's a, a, a point I wanted to make as well. And I, I'm, I hesitate to, to share this with you, but I will. I may break down crying, but again, I'm good. I got a text the other day from my son-in-law, Greg. And I won't read the whole thing, but this is when we first got the diagnosis. And Greg said, remember that your dad has won, W-O-N. He's been a winner at life. And he mentioned faith, family, friends, and things of that nature. Okay. Finally, finding yourself ultimately means finding your father. Finding yourself means finding your father. So the journey of self-discovery is really a journey to get back to the God who made you. Luke, 7, uh, Luke 15 again. Notice this. When he came to himself, that's a, I found myself. Right? Those are the words that basically, if we said finding yourself, self-discovery, definition, well, coming to your true self. Here it says when he came to himself is when he's at his lowest. You know, he's, he's going to be hanging around with pigs and hoping to get a job feeding swine because he's got no money left and he didn't know what he was doing and now there's a famine and there's nobody there. He's finally come to his real self. And he says this, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. What I want to suggest to you is that you come to yourself when you come back to your father. That's when you find yourself. And we will never find ourselves apart from the God who made us. We're cosmically homeless, you might say, until we're back at home with our Father. And you can take your journey into a far country, that far country, that far country. You can go to a different planet, fulfilling yourself, finding yourself. Who are you? You're unique. You are, but every single one of us shares one thing. We're a child of the Heavenly Father, and we will not find ourselves until we find Him. Our, Augustine said on one occasion, Thou hast made us, O God, and our hearts cannot rest until they rest in You. So finding yourself isn't really about yourself at all, ironically. Whether you're acquiring the right possessions you know, every kind of generation has its own little sayings that sort of capture what we're about culturally. I know cultures aren't monolithic, and there's always detractors and different things. It's a complex, large, diverse world. But I remember a bumper sticker back in the 80s and early 90s that captured a good bit of the spirit of the 80s, because I, I was a 
I was a sales rep with a computer company before I started preaching right then. And I, I remember how those guys, and mostly the guys in our office, but a few, few women as well, how they talk, you know. It's almost like your BMW and your, your neighborhood and your this and your that and the other, that was you. There's a bumper sticker. Maybe you remember it. He who dies with the most toys wins. Really. You found, you're, you're going to allow Madison Avenue and the marketplace to define yourself? What a small person. You're going to let them reduce you to a bunch of dollar signs or molecules of objects? You know, I've got this and this and this. What do you got? Well, so you're an owner of things. Wow. You collected some objects, and they shine, and they flip, and they do this and that. Ooh. You, don't let yourself be reduced to that. Because that's not who you are. You haven't found yourself if that's all you found. It's not just about acquiring the right possessions for yourself. Well, maybe it's about collecting the most experiences. A few years ago, it's YOLO. Right? That feels like five minutes ago, but I know that must be because it's in my head eight years ago or something. Right? It warp speed. YOLO. You only live once. So, no, it's not about material things. Now it's about... How many experiences, how many cool places have you gone to? How many different exotic cultures have you interacted with? How many you know, thrill rides have you been on? How many uh, you know, great classic performances of the opera or the play and you know, Broadway or whatever your thing is? You only live once. So it's you collecting experiences. That's kind of the same song in a different key, really. Somebody else says, no, it's not. And I'm bringing it, I think, a little bit more up to date, though this is probably still two years ago. It's about keeping yourself in the thick of what's happening, what's trending. FOMO. You know that one? Fear of missing out. Oh, man. I didn't know about it. i got to get on that, too. You have no joy because you're always, what if I'm not involved? Or maybe it's managing your image. It's collecting likes or followers. Curating an impeccable social media presence. Is that you? You found yourself then? Never completely real, and you know that deep down in your heart of hearts. You're maintaining a fiction. Because you got a, your, your phone has a battery, you know? My mom at the hospital, the first hospital we were at over at Rex, she's like, you know, a few hours into it, she's like, oh man, my, my battery's gone. And she's got, you know, an ancient phone, so nobody else could <laughs> iPhone like one half or something. You know, and nobody could charge it. So I went back home and got the charger because, you know, she was connected to the world. And, but the thing is, if, if you are living your life as if you're reality, I mean, my mom's not doing this, but you know, plenty of people do. That, that's going to fall apart because the hands holding your phone are flesh and blood. They're part of a real person who needs real touch and real connection. And at the end of the day, we're all part of a real flesh and blood world. We're not cyber presences. And the point, all, the common denominator of all this is that no finding yourself is really about yourself at the end of the day. Whatever it is you're collecting for yourself and claiming for yourself and presenting about yourself. At the end of the day, finding yourself is about finding your Heavenly Father, the one who gave you your very existence, without whom you are not really you. Think about the first time, if you're a Bible believer, like we are at this church, 
If you believe that the, 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 the story told from, from creation to new creation, from Genesis to Revelation, is the true story of the world, doesn't mean that other stories don't get bits and pieces of it right. God, there's something called common grace in the world. It's, a lot of truth is accessible to unbelievers. God makes it rain in, in, on the just and the unjust, you might say. But the true story of the world, the, the grand narrative that explains the world, for us, what we believe is the story of the Bible. And when humanity first appears on the scene, created by Yahweh, in, in, in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, humanity's very identity, the very definition of humanity is vis-a-vis -vis God. You don't have a human without God. They're in the garden together. That is humanity. So anytime a human is separated from God at any level, it's a suboptimal human. You're not full human, fully human. You're not fully living your humanity. You haven't really found yourself to the extent that you're separate from God. Because that's what a human is. He didn't just make us and go, you're on your own. He wants to be with us. He wants a relationship. He loves us and has the best, uh, the best things in mind for us. And look how the, the father, look in this story of the prodigal son, look how the father responds to the sinful, rebellious son who comes home. And look how the Father responds to us, folks, despite our sins when we come back to Him. He says, does the prodigal, after he comes to himself, I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no, worthy, no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your heart servants. I'll take that. And he, so he's got this speech ready, right? I'm going to go back and say that. I know he's going to be, he's got to be like hopping mad, with, justifiably. All I'm going to, I'm just, can I be a slave there? He arose and comes to his father, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. No doubt, looking that way day after day after day. Can you imagine? He ran, he felt compassion. He suffered with his son. Well, a person, we don't, I don't feel sorry for him. He brought it all on himself. Very unbiblical thing to say. We bring almost everything on ourselves, and the gospel's predicated on that. God felt compassion, suffered with a person who absolutely rebelled against the father, the son, and he still feels compassion. That's the whole point of the gospel. Yeah, other people's sins affect us, but so do I. Most of our problems come from ourselves. And he's still there, looking out on the horizon, ready to run and meet you if you'll come back to him. So he does that. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called to your son. So he's launched into this prepared speech. And then look at this. Like interrupting him, sort of. The father says to his servants, no, no, no. Quickly bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. In other words, we're going to treat my returned son like royalty. He doesn't even let him finish his, his little speech about penitence. That's not the first order of business here. It's the father and the son being reconciled. It's the son coming to himself by coming home to his father. And the father says, this my son was dead and is alive again. 
he was lost and is found. One more quote in the lesson jurors. This is from Wayne Jacobson, a little book that uh, Lauren Sean gave me that I'm really, really loving. It's talking about this parable in this section of the book. In this incredible story, so think about the story of the prodigal son. What he's trying to answer with this quote, I forgot to give you this context, is when in the story do you think you see the father's love for the prodigal son the most? Is it when he's giving him the inheritance anyway, when he's not even dead? Is it when you know, he's looking across at the horizon apparently every day because he sees him when he comes, when he materializes on the horizon? Is it that, is that show? That, you know, it's there, he, he's thinking about it even when he's not there. Is it when he comes back home and he gives him the ring and the row? When is it? That's the question he's entertaining here. And he says this. In this incredible story, when do you think the father loved his son the most? Okay, so think about that. The events of the story cannot be accounted for by the varying love of the father. Only the varying perception of that love by the son. So that's what the story's really about. God's always loved him. Father's always loved him. Though he was not less loved at any point in the story, though most of it, uh, through most of it, he lived as if he were less loved. You get that? The father's love was always constant, but the son's ability to live out of that love is the variable. When he took the money from his father and stormed off the farm, grateful to be out from under the clutches and free to pursue his own way, he lived less loved. When he spent this money in a foreign land, wasting it on his own pleasures and thinking he'd finally fooled his father, he lived less loved. The son did. Even when, start, when he started from home, left out a, letter, a word there, even when he started from home, practicing his plea of repentance, willing to be a slave, he lived less loved. So he's, he's choosing to live in a less loved way than could be possible. But finally... When he was home in the robe, the sandals, the ring, sitting at his father's table, sinking his teeth into the filet mignon, it finally sank in. He was loved. But here's the author's point. He always was loved. It was that then he could stop living as if he weren't. Most of our lives are spent living less loved. When we worry that God will ask us from some, for some horrible sacrifice, we live less loved. When we indulge ourselves in sin, we live less loved. We're choosing that. When we give in to anxiety in the crush of circumstances, we're living less loved. When we try to earn God's favor by our own efforts, we live less loved. Isn't that beautiful? He's always been loving us. Just look around. Look at this church. Look at the beautiful fall day. Look at the death and burial and resurrection of His only Son, which came about because of His love for us. Amen? Amen. Let's live out of that love. That's what I want. I know you all do too. All right. She wasn't 18, 20 minutes. I told my mom, I don't know I don't anything to say. I can't have any time. And she'll, you'll find a way. You're not going to preach. Sure, he's saying the same thing. All right. Shorter than normal. But anyway, um, I, I want you to know how much we love y'all. And there are a lot of folks here visiting today. I, I don't know all of you. Look forward to getting to know you. But we love having y'all here, folks from the healing transition, elsewhere in the community. It may be that something from the gospel, the, the word of God, that was said today or maybe that you know already that you've been thinking about has, has pricked your heart and, and made you see the need to come back home to your father. 
And I want you to know he's waiting there with open arms. All the things he tells us to do, the ways he wants us to obey him, the sins of which he wants us to repent and turn from, all of that's for our own good. He's not some sadistic God up there going, I'm going to make him do this and have to go through that and quit having this fun. No, he's, he's, he knows what he's talking about. And he's offering us the most fulfilling, <laughs> beloved life with him that's possible and, and, and far beyond anything we could even imagine. So if you're interested in that and would like to study more about that, there is somebody here at this church, myself or somebody else, who would sit down with you week by week and go through those things. Um, happy to do that, thrilled to do that. If you're ready to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins and, and put on Jesus and begin your walk with Him as one of His children, and you believe the message of the gospel and willing to repent of your sins and move in that direction, He knows you're not going to be perfect. The sacrifice on the cross was perfect. And He'll cover your sins and, and, and welcome you into His family, and so will we. If you have any needs like that or prayers, whatever it is, come down to one of these inner chairs while we all stand and sing together.